0: Good morning, Flock at the Rock. It's good to gather together in the wonderful name of Jesus this morning. This morning we are taking a look at two desperate blind men who will encounter the Son of God and be blind no more. They'll be singing that familiar verse from amazing grace i once was blind but now i see a song that we all sing too because of god's wonderful love grace and mercy toward us this morning we are headed to psalm 146 for this morning's call to worship talks about all the wonderful blessings of God available to those who believe. And uh, we are going to read that psalm together, just a few verses of it in unison, uh, starting at verse 6. It's projected there on the screen. Reading together, he is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your kindness toward us that has led us to repentance that we might come to you and have life. We're grateful for all your many benefits to us, God, for lifting us up and lightening our burdens, for giving us life everlasting, for giving our sins and opening the eyes of our hearts, the most important thing of all, so that we could see Christ and come to him and find life Now, Father, we pray that you prepare our hearts as we worship you and um, open the eyes of our understanding that we might see these truths, put them into practice, and be blessed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to get started here, picking up where we left off there in Matthew chapter 9, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way through, and so... uh, Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Father God, now as we consider these two blind men and the man who couldn't speak, who meets you and you loose his tongue to sing your praise, we pray, God, that you would show us things about our lives and the gospel that will change us and make us more effective and productive for you. In Christ's name, amen. I remember reading a story several years ago about somebody who grew up blind. I think it was in a third world country and actually his condition was correctable through surgery and so he had the surgery much to the joy of his entire family and he was overjoyed as well of course and the thing that I remember about the article was they asked him about Uh, his favorite colors, and uh, all of that. And so he started listing the colors. Uh, He said uh, he loves the drama of red. And he said that uh, black, the color black just seems so powerful. Uh, Blue made him feel relaxed. And then they said, well, what's your favorite color? Since now you could see. And he said, yellow. He said he passed a field of mustard greens and and saw the yellow. And he said, now that is outrageous. And so uh, from then on, he just wanted everything in shades of yellow. That's just amazing. Now, most people who suffer from blindness will not know the joy of coming to see in this life. It must be a very tough burden to bear one of our congregants, Patricia. She's got such an awe-inspiring testimony, how she became blind as a young woman. She got married, raised children, and uh, it's just awesome uh, testimony and how she bears that cross so Graciously, and uh, I suggest you ask her about her testimony because it's wonderful. And so, but back in the day, can you imagine what a burden it would be without modern conveniences and technology, or or social uh, welfare that steps in with braille and all kinds of assistance? It it must have been so hard back in the day, uh, not being able to see. But there was something even more uh, horrific uh, than being born blind or not being able to see. And of course, that would be spiritual blindness with its eternal ramifications. And we're going to be talking about that this morning. After healing a blind man in a different uh, story, uh, Jesus says, you know, I came into this world bringing judgment to give sight to the blind and to show those who think that they see that they're actually blind themselves. And so this morning, we're going to talk about such things as we get underway here in Matthew chapter 9, picking up where we left off. I once was blind, but now I see. Uh, Let's follow along as I read the text. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked them, he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord. They both chimed in together. Uh, Verse 29. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. Verse 32. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. I would add, probably the world, yeah. Verse 34, what a way to end the paragraph. But the Pharisees said, It is by the power of the devil, the prince of demons, that he drives out these demons. And there you have it, the text for our consideration this morning two men unable to see, one man unable to speak but after Jesus gets through with them and them getting through with Jesus because it's something has to happen on both ends for a miracle to happen from God. And so, yes, all three of them will be praising God and one of them for the first time with his words, which is so fitting that your first words be praised to your maker. And so what you have here uh, this morning is... Uh, Matthew is writing with a view toward his Jewish audience showing that Jesus is truly the Messiah, fulfilling the prophecies of old. As I tell you many times, there are 300 of them. But one uh, particular one from Isaiah mentions both Jesus healing the blind and opening deaf ears and letting Mute tongues speak. And so I think I have that for you. I'll show it to you here, Isaiah 35, uh, verses uh, 5 and 6. Speaking of the Messiah to come 700 years earlier, then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And so that's the point there. So we can go back to our text. the The point of this is that uh, the Messiah has come, and he has fulfilled these very words. So, Nobody in the Jewish audience really had an excuse not to believe in Jesus with these kinds of miraculous healings here. Um, And the Bible does say in Romans chapter one, really nobody has excuse not to believe in God. There's too much evidence in creation itself. And so let's begin with uh, the first paragraph with our two sets of blind eyes, verses 27 through 31. We'll isolate that for you on the screen. And then we'll uh, finish up with our mute tongue that speaks. And so blind eyes, a real problem, but not the worst melody that could happen to you if you're blind from seeing uh, the gates that lead to eternal life, that's a worse problem indeed. And so I want you to remember that every one of Jesus' miracles, every last one of them is pointing to a wider, more significant truth of the gospel because Jesus came to give us eternal life. That's the point. And so uh, healing somebody born blind is really testifying uh, to the gospel that opens the eyes of our hearts and leads us uh, to Christ so that we could live forever. And did you know that healing the blind is the number one category of uh, miraculous healings that Jesus does and he, and one writer said it's easy to see why healing blind eyes was the master's favorite thing to do for no other miracle describes better what it is he truly came to do to save our souls by opening the eyes of our hearts and so yeah that's the point as I've said many times Ah, uh, the point wasn't to pull somebody out of a uh, off of a stretcher. It was to pull us out of the grave, and so these uh, temporary, less significant miracles, uh, speak to the greater work that we would do once he went to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit, the greater work of evangelizing the world and raising people's souls to eternal life. And so with that, we see that the the text begins with the two men following Jesus. Now you're going to see a lot of evidence of their faith. You know how James says in uh, James chapter 1, Stop telling me about your faith. Show it to me and let it be seen by the way you live. Well, nobody, uh, by the end of this paragraph, uh, nobody will be asking if they had faith, right? Their lives just evidence it, and that's the way it should be. And it starts with men, blind men who can't see who are following Jesus. And the only reason they would do that, and it wouldn't be easy right they can't see so they're constantly asking where is he where did he go now is he moving uh you know because they can't see and they're stumbling and bumbling around they're never without a, a hand to lead them or a shoulder to guide them they do their best and they're calling out and they're calling out is a strong word there and uh of course, for good reason. Uh, they're desperate. They know, they have the faith that the miracle worker, the Messiah, is near, but they can't see him. And so, of course, they're calling out with a verb that means the, the ugly croaking of a raven, the cawing of a of a crow, that annoying kind of a guttural cry uh, that is kind of annoying because uh, in in Mark chapter 10, do you recall another blind man who was crying out in desperation, same word, and blind Bartimaeus, and he's cackling and and, and calling out, you know, and the crowd is so annoyed, they tell him, stop it. Be quiet until Jesus says, hey, call him to me. This is the the sense here. The word actually means to croak, to call out, but to croak, much like that raven, you know? And so, you know, humiliation is a small price to pay. Uh, when your life's on the line, right? So modesty goes out the window. You're, you're, you're sinking in quicksand. You don't care what other people think of you uh, and how the, the tone of your voice or how you're acting. You want somebody to lend you a hand out of that quicksand. And so modesty goes out the window. I would croak too, you know? Uh, and really, most anyone, and I wrote this down, anyone who gets to heaven has to have croaked, right? But I mean that in both senses of the word. You will have had to have cried out and you will have had to have died. Unless, of course, you're alive at the time Jesus comes for the church and then uh, you will not die. You will be changed in a moment at the trumpet sound in a flash and twinkling of an eye. And so we look forward to that because we might be the ones who remain at the time of Jesus coming. Now, what are they calling out? Another evidence of faith. They're confessing that Jesus is the Messiah or that Jesus is Lord by calling him Son of David. What does that mean? Well, David was promised, was in Ian's 2nd Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, that a biological heir to his own life would one day sit upon the throne and rule and reign forever, but be related to him. And so 27 grandsons later, Jesus the Messiah was conceived of the Holy Spirit, but born of the Virgin Mary, who was blood-related 27 generations later to King David. She was his ancestress, right? And so... Uh, we see here that they believe that prophecy. The Jews would say, well, is he related to David? And the answer was, yes, the son of David times 27, right? And so, you know, that's the password, man. They're screaming out the password to get into the paradise of God. So much more than just getting your eyes open, but having your sins forgiven and eternal life. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Another way of saying Jesus is Messiah, the same things that they're saying. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says, You shall be saved. Spirit from eternal wrath of God and the condemnation we deserve simply by calling on the name of the Lord. And so they are getting more than they're asking for. Little do they know, they've hit the proverbial jackpot, haven't they? As they confess with their mouths, Jesus is the Messiah indeed. And notice also what they're calling for. They're calling for mercy, mercy. And when you call for mercy from God, it just kind of opens up the the doors of the treasuries of heaven. So check it out here. There, uh, uh, one writer said this. Notice their sole appeal was for mercy. There's no talk about merit and all the good deeds they've done. No pleading of their past sufferings or their persevering endeavors or their promises to reform their lives. But plain and simple, they just say, have mercy on us. And then Charles Spurgeon said, he will never win a blessing from God who demands it as if he had a right to it. Well, you know, grace and mercy, grace is getting what you don't deserve, Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. One time, uh, one of my uh, kids was on timeout in the same room as I. uh, He was probably a junior higher at the time, and I was in the same room, and he really wanted to get (laughs) off a timeout. And so he, he asked his pastor father, Dad, what's the definition of mercy? And I wasn't paying attention. I just said, mercy is not getting what you deserve. And he looked at me and went, <laughs> you know, that just uh, just spoke volumes. And I think I just gave him an extra hour. <laughs> I probably let him off for being so witty. Anyway, uh, yes, mercy is so important because God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble and all they're asking for is mercy. Give us what we don't deserve. It wasn't my right to be born with two good working eyes. I don't even deserve that. But I'm asking that you would have mercy. And uh, they hit that proverbial jackpot, as I like to say. So they know, they're beggars, you know. They know that they have nothing to commend themselves to God about, which is a picture of the entire human race as sinners. That Jesus says, you may think that you've got it all together. He says this in, I think it's Revelation chapter 3 that you guys have it all together. You think, oh, I'm wealthy. I I don't need anything. Um, I've got it all. And he says, but actually from heaven's point of view, without the covering and the grace and the mercy of God, he says, you're actually poor, wretched, Blind and without clothes, shameful or naked. And so, but coming to God for mercy, then we get everything we need, and these guys are going to get what they're asking for. One little side note is another way they evidence their faith is by croaking out that um, confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Because in John chapter 9, we find out that the authorities, the religious authorities, had already put out a mandate. If you confess that Jesus was Messiah, you'd be excommunicated from the synagogue. Oh, that's a big deal. (laughs) <laughs> just go across town and find yourself another church back in the day that was your community no one would buy or sell uh with you if you were excommunicated you would be shunned your life would be over and so <laughs> the fear of god <laughs> fell on them as it were uh where with the leaders saying uh you better not make public that you think he's the one by the way messiah and christ Christ, the Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah, it means the one. He's the one. He's the one, that way of salvation. He's God's chosen one, right? And so if you did that, it came with a cost. But you know, when you've got real faith, you don't care. That's what real faith does. It picks up its cross and follows. Remember I told you about the Jewish young man? I think he was 20. He came to me and he said, I'm convinced I'm a secret believer. I'm a secret Christian. And I said, bro, there's no such thing. And he said, listen, if I tell anybody in my Jewish family, I would be considered a traitor. Everybody would turn their backs on me. It would be terrible. And I said, "Well, well, you're not a real believer. You don't have genuine faith until you're able to confess Jesus as Lord Lay the cards out on the table. Let the chips fall where they may. You pick up your cross. That's what faith does. We pick up our cross and we follow. And so they get into the house. One writer said, that's where faith will get you, into the house of God and before the presence of the Most High. That's why, I mean, people are saying, how did these two blind beggars get into the house? It might have been Jesus' house, might have been whatever house. They're in the presence of the one who spoke, and the universe leapt into existence. Colossians chapter one verse fifteen. He made by him all things were made, and these two blind nobody beggars are standing before the one who can make a star by speaking. They're in a good place, because why? They're seeking with faith. Faith brings you ushers you in to the presence of god and so here jesus speaks first and do you notice that neither of them mention the word blind or wanting to be healed they, they it's the elephant in the room everybody knows what what's going on and so jesus speaks first and he says do you believe that i can do this and in other words he's testing them He's prodding, poking around. Are you just a crisis Christian? Is just saying whatever it takes, you know? Or do you believe that I really have the power of God, that I am the Messiah with the ability uh, to do the miraculous? And they both (laughs) chime in Yes, Lord. And that's the other key passcode, is it not? You are the Lord, and all things are possible for you. David Guzik, uh, a friend of mine, a pastor down in Southern California, he wrote, faith does not guarantee we get a yes for everything we're asking for, yet there are undoubtedly multitudes that have not because they do not ask in faith. Along these lines, my favorite, uh, Charles Spurgeon says, uh, he touched them with his hand. And they must also touch him with their faith. Yes, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You got to believe. That's the foundation stone. And so, verse 29, he touches their eyes and he says, Since you believe, I can. Here you go. And they get. What they're requesting. Now, people get mixed up here a little bit. We see a kind of uh, out of balance approach to uh, what Jesus was saying here. The statements regarding faith, kind of a sticking point for some. And so they mistakenly think that you have a request, you have faith that you're going to get the thing, and you've got to really believe that you're going to get that thing, and then you'll get that thing. When it's misplaced. You should be f- praying and believing in God, that he has the ability to provide that blessing for you. And then either way it comes, whether you get it in another form or whether you don't get it or whether you, you get it later. Uh, your faith isn't shaken. Your life doesn't come undone because your faith is not in the thing you want, it's in the God you serve, you see? And so a little bit of imbalance there. When Jesus says, according to your faith, that's really interesting. Charles Spurgeon comes through again. Our faith obtains more or less according to its own capacity to receive. In other words, he's saying this, if you believe that God can lift a hundred pounds, you are only going to ask him for a hundred pounds favor, a hundred pound request, right? And so in that regard, it's not that you have large faith for something, but large faith in God and his power that Jesus said, with me, with a little faith, nothing shall be impossible to you. But we have struggles with that. We have human human limitations in our thinking, and we extend that to God. But um, Wilbur Reese wrote a book, I think in the 70s or 80s. It was popular. It's called Three Dollars of God. Let me quote just a little bit of it to you along these lines about having faith in God's power in God's ability, he's the one who told Sarah, <laughs> who Sarah rolled her eyes when she heard that he was going to allow her, enable her to have a baby at her old age. And she laughed and the Lord asked her husband, why did she laugh? I'm the Lord. Is there anything too difficult for me? That's the point of the faith. It's not in the thing. It's in the God who is able provide the things right and so back to three dollars of god please he wrote i would like to buy three dollars worth of god not enough to explode my soul or disturb my peace but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine i don't want enough of god to make me love my enemies or go the extra mile or turn the other cheek I want happiness, not holiness. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Oh, ouch, I know. I mean, how big is your God? When I think of God and how big he is, I really do always go back to uh, making the universe by speaking. You know, Once you're past Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the heavens, the solar systems out there, the galaxies. By speaking, everything's downhill from there. He can do anything. So uh, a big fish swallowing Jonah for a couple of days, no problem. The sun going backwards or forwards or upside down, whatever. All of it, once you get past Genesis one one, we we're good. And so they have enough faith, that pinch that they needed to move mountains. And the mountain of blindness has been removed. And they're seeing skies of blue and red roses too. The joy for them, so great. But the joy intended for the wider application for those who were blind of soul and in our minds, we couldn't see the light of life. The joy of coming into sight is so much even more great than that. Don't you recall it? Uh, I mean, I I think of my first week at having open eyes of my soul, June of 1979. (laughs) the, The skies were bluer, the grass was greener, and the path laid out that leads to life so crystal clear. You know, have you ever tried on somebody else's glasses that have a strong prescription, You know, and you put it on, and you can't see a thing, right? It's as if the Holy Spirit comes in and takes the blinders off of you as an unbeliever, lifts those glasses away, and you are able to see miles and miles with crystal clear uh, perceptions. It's a beautiful thing. We can see what life is all about. We can see our purpose We can see the pitfalls and how not to live a life that when you get at the end, you moan and groan and realize you wasted a good portion of your life. That happens when you don't come into sight, but when you see, you have so much joy because you see what's wise and what's not. You see what's necessary and what can be let go. And so yes indeed there's joy uh, and that's why we sing so many gospel songs have to do about light coming into the light and being set free in the light and so we thank god for that verses 30 to 31 jesus sternly warns them see to it that you don't tell anybody about this well yeah that seems impossible right i mean it's just saying listen you may not understand this Normally it would be a good thing to sing my praises, but uh, right now I'm just asking you by faith, just do what I'm asking you to do because I don't, I can't go to the cross, can't stir up trouble before it's time, and if too many people come around, it hinders my ability to work. In Mark chapter one, the leper disregards Jesus' request, and Mark says because they did that jesus was hindered in the amount of people he could minister to so these two guys with faith they they didn't have as much faith as we might have thought because they didn't have enough faith to just trust that when jesus says who could open their eyes says hey it sounds crazy but i want you to be quiet about this at least for a while that even asking you to do something that doesn't make any sense would be a good thing and to do a good thing when jesus says refrain from it is to do a bad thing we're going to we read less there are less miracles that, available for us to read in the bible because they disregarded what jesus uh, asked them To do, I don't know, I think that we baffle God sometimes. (laughs) You would think after being blind all their lives, and then suddenly (laughs) with Jesus' word, boom, they see, they would be like, hey, anything you ever asked us for the rest of our (laughs) lives, we're indebted to you. But no, 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 they just go and do their own thing. Kind of reminds me of a lot of us. We get what we need. And one writer put it this way, God has done so much for us, we mind him so little. Let's finish up with our mute man who's talking up a storm now because he encountered God's only begotten son. He couldn't speak and he was tormented by an evil being. Let's go to verses 32 through 34, please. So I'll paraphrase, you have it before you. Jesus now with his disciples and these two guys, they're leaving the house and the two men are doing cartwheels and yelling at the top of their lungs how outrageous yellow is. (laughs) And uh, up comes some guys hauling in a demon-possessed man who cannot speak. Jesus casts out the demon. Suddenly, the man speaks for the first time. The crowd is astonished and says, Nobody has ever seen anything like this, ever. And then, but the religious guys, they have an answer. They say, You know how he's doing this? He's doing this by the power of the devil. (laughs) Let's talk about that. That is, uh, those are very sad, sad. People and now the tongue was uh, that was bound is now loosed and what a story that tongue could tell. Years, man, he's not been able to see a thing, and now he is. And boy, you know, I don't know about his wife how she's gonna feel because she's gonna get an earful, isn't she? Now it turns out that the cat didn't have his tongue; it was something more scary and more malevolent than. A cat. Jesus outs the cause of his condition and that it's a devil, you know, a demon, one of the devil's henchmen. You know, a third of the spiritual beings called angels, a third of them fell and became what we call demons. And since they're spirit beings, they can possess. And so here we see uh, the demon has made this man mute Uh, The word in the Greek can mean mute or deaf because they're uh, associated, as we know. Uh, But here, really, he's more mute than deaf because uh, when Jesus touches him, it doesn't say that that he heard. It says that he spoke. And so the tongue is is what's being uh, focused in upon. And so here's a quote about some balance here. While ultimately every last malady of mankind can be traced back to the devil, the fall, or to sin, when it entered the world, there's plenty of misery out there in this world that has nothing to do with the devil. And so obviously (laughs) there's demonic activity in the world, right? Uh, But sometimes we give demons and the devil more credit than they deserve, and so you remember a hundred years ago when *Laughing* was a popular TV show, and there was a, a guy on there who was always making a joke about the devil maybe do it, right? And yeah, no, we don't need his help much. We can take care of sinning uh, quite on our own. And yeah, my dad, my dad was a little imbalanced. Uh, God bless him. He's in heaven now, so he's blessed. Uh, but he used to always, for everything, everything that went wrong, it's a demon, you know. The car wouldn't start; it's the devil, you know. He got a flat tire once, and he goes, you know, I think every time I go by this one street, he goes, I think the demons hang out there because I always have a problem right about there. <laughs> but the dad, I don't think so. But um, yeah, uh, one writer said this: Jesus' death and resurrection his ascension, the giving of the Holy Spirit in the New Age, the New Testament, really dealt a severe blow to the unseen realm of these kinds of spirit creatures. And so that they seem to have been mitigated as the way that they possess and the way that they do damage. They're still around, of course. The Bible says in First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, that beware, be on your guard, for the devil prowls about like a roaring lion. And he does that through his legion of um, helpers, if you want to call them that. And so, yeah, so um, our bodies were broken in the fall and quite naturally will manifest that brokenness a thousand different ways without the help of a malevolent spirit. And so the way bigger problem is not that he had a tongue that wasn't working. It was that he was possessed by one of these demons. And so Jesus makes quick business of him, doesn't he? Just no maybe a glance, no fuss, no commotion, maybe bye-bye, you know, get out, gone, end the story, right? But it's the beginning of this man's story. And all of a sudden, everybody who knows him knows he can't speak. Suddenly, he's speaking, and everybody wants to know what they leave out in these verses. What did he say? What was his first word? And I'll tell you what it is. I kind of know. I bet I'm right. We'll check it out. We'll ask him, and we'll see. Didn't he? the first thing come out of his mouth was, thank you? I'm crying, unbelievable. (laughs) Stuff just uh, will touch your heart when you don't even know it, you know? I mean, who doesn't relate to the moment where you could, instead of be speaking in profane ways or gossiping or lying with your tongue, suddenly you're praising the one who made you, the one who decided what color your eyes would be, where you would live, how long you would live, what you'd be doing with your God-given life, yeah, it's moving. Be able to see what's really true and real. Be able to express yourself uh, the way God intended it to happen. And so, yeah, with just a word, blink a, a bat of an eyelash, boom, the devil goes running like a scared little girl. No offense to little girls who get scared because... Big guys get scared too. (laughs) Whatever, moving on. Uh, When you meet this guy in heaven, you know what he's going to be singing? I've got another wager for you. His favorite hymn is going to be, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. You know, the hymn writer there, John Wesley, in 1780, he had a bout of pneumonia, something like that. Every breath hurt him. He couldn't praise God without pain. And so when he recovered, he said he wished he had a thousand tongues to just publish to the whole world what a great God he served. And so I was thinking, you know, I wish I had a thousand tongues. We all wish that. That's what all Christians should wish. We don't do very well with the one tongue that we do have in uh, praising God and letting others know about the triumphs of his grace, but we should. I mean, we've got more to sing about than just a loose tongue or eyes that can see the love of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit being a new creation raised to a life that can never die, a clean conscience, just a clean conscience. That's all you ever got, right? To know that not one sin will ever be charged to your account, not one little sin, as clean and holy and moral as Jesus, the Son of God. That's how we stand before him. Oh, for a thousand, oh, for a gabillion tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And so we close out with the bizarre comment (laughs) that these long-road, pious, hypocritical villains in the story make. They're stuck. (laughs) Everybody knows. The guy can't speak a word all his life, perhaps, right? Or these two guys. uh, you, You know, some of them were born without eyes. And now they're seeing? They... The Pharisees are stuck. They're opposing him. They're saying he's uh, he's illegitimate. He's not the Messiah. But uh, what do they say? There's power. There's transformation. There's evidence right in front of people. And so they look and they say, "Well, what do you think, guys?" They're stuck. You know what? You can argue theology. You can say, "How can there be? He's claiming to be God, but you know, hero Israel, the Lord is one. So how does that work?" You can argue that. Or you can argue his claims. He says, I'm the light of the world. If anybody follows me, he'll never walk in darkness. You can argue and say, how's that possible? But you can't argue when somebody's got twisted up ankles, atrophied, he's never taken a walk in his life, and he says, I say to you, young man, pick up your mat and go home. And the guy starts dancing around. You can't argue with that. So there's power, there's evidence there's a miracle. So what do you say, Pharisee? Yes, there's power. Yes, there's a miracle, but I'll tell you who's doing it. It's the devil himself. And Jesus said, watch it because you're this close to committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which means attributing, (laughs) uh, knowing the Holy Spirit revealing to you, this is really him. And you say, no, it's really the devil. It's the kind of thing, really, he's saying, you're this close to passing the point of no return and dying in your sins. That's really the point. It's the Holy Spirit's showed you the truth and you're still rejecting it, so much so that you would call it the work of the devil. That, my friend, is not a sin that can be forgiven to die in that condition. And he wants them to turn and live. And so... Jesus is going to answer this because they keep saying it. So in chapter 12, he's going to answer them and say, I've got a question for you. You're saying Satan is casting out Satan? How does that make sense? First of all, the logic of it. Since when does the devil want to bring joy to anybody's life and uh, relief and deliverance? That's not really the, the devil's job description. It's to kill, steal, and destroy Jesus, the one who came for life. But Jesus' point is going to be, all right, if Satan is against Satan, isn't he shooting himself in the foot? A house divided against itself is destined for destruction. If Satan casts out himself, (laughs) really, isn't he defeating his own purpose? Well, the three guys, they're not confused. They glorify God. It's only people who are bent on sinning and rejecting God. They're the ones who really become spiritually insane. That's what happens. That's what happens when you see, when you keep rejecting the truth. You become not able to know truth from falsehood, falsehood from truth. You become spiritually insane. Let me close with this. I was in a coffee shop, oh, maybe a year after I became a Christian. Maybe I was 20 or 21 years old with an old friend who knew me then. We used to party together and all kinds of things. And I was trying to share the gospel. He knew me when I was at my worst, 17, 18, and most of my 19th year. Godless, profane, immoral. Oh, dead set against Christians and church. I thought that was I just mocked Christians. And we met Christians on a street corner once. And I he wanted to keep walking. And I was like, oh, no, this is too much fun. And I just, I'm ashamed at the words that came out of my mouth. So I meet up with him and say, you remember that. You know that guy that immoral, godless, hater of Christianity, explain this. I'm going to Bible college. I'm going to be a pastor. I'm preaching the faith I once tried to destroy. Explain it. And like the Pharisees, just grasping for straws because of the love of sin and autonomy to run my own life, even though I can't explain it. And of course, it's obviously true. He says, you know what? You had a nervous breakdown. What? Who's ever heard of a nervous breakdown that brings you peace, that makes your life better, that improves the quality of your life, where you develop character qualities and begin to be more other-centered and more thoughtful and kind and loving to do things that aren't destructive, but helpful and edifying. I told him, would to God that the whole world have a nervous breakdown, if that's the case. And so that's what Jesus said. He said this. He said, I came in judgment. and We're going to do a reversal of sorts. He said that the blind eyes may be open, but those who claim to see, they will become blind. That the mute tongues, they will speak. But those who are speaking will become silenced. Let's pray together. Father God, we're so thankful for the grace. There but the grace of God go any of us. God, we came to you, most of us, kicking and dragging our heels as it were and so We pray, Father, that these truths that we spoke of and reflected upon in our hearts and our minds would set us free, make us more grateful, stand in awe of you and want to yield our lives more and more so that you could be honored and glorified and well-pleased by the things we say and the lives we live. We thank you for your great, incredible love.